You're listening to this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters, a podcast about the personalities and events in the New South Wales Parliament here in Sydney with Alistair Hinskins. Well, Freya, this week in our episode of Macquarie Street Matters, we're going to have the second part of Sarah Mitchell's podcast, but we're also going to have a political section talking about the last week in state parliament and some of the issues that came up. It was a pretty interesting week because Chris Minns was actually sick with COVID and there were a lot of interesting issues. Let's get into it. Now, one of the massive challenges you had as Education Minister was, of course, a global pandemic mm. disrupting our cool, our school system mm. in a way that has not been disrupted for over 100 years. Yeah. That must have been a really hard time to, to be Minister. Yeah, it was. And it's sort of now you look back on it and think... You know, that, it was the better part of two years of the four year of four years of, of me being in the role, and I think we did incredibly well mm. given the challenges. And I think particularly teachers who honestly overnight went to being able to teach remotely, and the different ways and shapes and forms that that happened, the way that they went to support students and principals and all the school support officers. Like I was so proud of what I saw education as a community do to back in children that I think if you had have said to people the year before oh next year you'll be able to teach a whole term remotely everyone would say no we can't do like there's no way but then when you have to that grit and determination that that comes and you know I when we were learning from home I had my youngest was still in preschool but my eldest was at school so I got to sort of see it as a parent but also I dropped into online Zoom classes. I went to schools when they were handing out the COVID test when kids were coming back. So we kind of got to see the whole range of the way that that support was there. And it was amazing. But yeah, like it was it was very full on. And, and living in this sort of world where we were trying to make the best decisions possible with really no blueprint on how to do it, taking health advice, of course, and that always had to be sort of the fundamental mm. part behind a decision, but also really thinking about, well, what are the social impacts here and the emotional impacts and the lack of routine? And I still think we're starting to, well, still seeing the impacts of that. And that may continue for some time. You know, there are, there are children who are in kindergarten now who missed a couple of years mm. of preschool and mm. that's really impacting them. So I don't think it's something that you kind of just move on from, even though we all feel like we're in a bit of a post-COVID world, but those impacts I think will continue to be there mm. for a little while because how can it not mm. have such an impact when you when you've changed so fundamentally but if if we if we sort of think of a counterfactual to the way in which you are able to manage the situation mm. with minimal disruption yeah you know compare that to say Victoria yeah, yeah. I mean the, the impact on the kids there must have been massively more than yeah. in New South Wales as you say you know, as you go around schools and as I go around my local schools and, and preschools, mm. yes, they notice mm. that there have been impacts mm. from COVID, but much more minimised by the approach that we oh, took absolutely. than it could have been. Yeah, so I mean, and, and I think we absolutely made the best decisions for the time that we mm. were in and, and with the advice that we had. But, like, it is, it, it sort of feels like a little bit of a, you know, you, you, I recall it some days, I have some friends were talking about it the other day, it was like, remember when we just didn't leave the house for, like, a month or six weeks or and then trying to have meetings and make decisions and then get that message out and but I mean people were amazing and you're right as soon as we were able to come back we did and I do think we got that balance right because a lot of parents were frightened about mm. sending their children back too and it's weird like as a mum normally kids pick up everything and anything and mm. whereas COVID they 
in the end weren't as susceptible to. So that sort of convincing of parents that like, yes, we know that flu and gastro and nits goes through every school, but you'll be okay with COVID. That was a bit of a weird it was, situation it? too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, like, I think we did incredibly well when you compare us to other jurisdictions. And I think that ongoing support will be there with things like the tuition programs that we set up. And but I was I going to ask you about that. that. So that yeah. th- those tuition programs seem to be very successful mm. at dealing with the consequences? Yeah, so we did, I think we put almost $900 million into it over three years, which was small group, you know, two, three, four students together and really picking up on areas that they might have missed. Now, there's a lot of research, again, that shows that that's the most effective way to help students with outcomes. And a lot of teachers would say to me, sometimes you could just tell that a child just hadn't quite got that concept and they don't need remedial support for you know, weeks on end, but going out for a couple of weeks and then just mastering that little bit of learning that they didn't pick up and then coming back in the classroom setting has helped them on their trajectory where they would have been before. And so that was very successful. That is something that is continuing, which again, good policy should trump politics. My only concern is that I think the new government have put 50 million a year into it. We had, as I said, 900 million over three years. So there'll be a lot of children who won't be able to access Mm. it because there's not enough money. So but we'll, we'll see how that goes. And it's a strange... I, I find that the Minns government has a strange list of priorities in terms of where they're cutting, you mm. know. Like, why would you cut that? Why mm. would you cut active kids, which is mm. really important for physical, social development of, uh, of, of our young people? It, it seems mm. as if they're, they've been surprisingly anti-development mm. of children, yeah. you know, in, in the best ways possible, mm. much more interested in in public sector wage increases mm. and, and, and I guess that's the quid pro quo, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they sort of say they won't be cutting anything that impacts children or students in the class, but they have and they've had to because they had their election commitment which was to do the pay increase. That's, again, their prerogative as government, that's what they've delivered. But you don't just find a billion-odd dollars a year in education and no-one notices. Like, things that are being cut, and there there is more to come, I know, that, that concerns me because, you know, they will argue that our, our tuition program, for instance, wasn't permanently funded, but we put $300 million almost in each year over that time. So while theirs might be ongoing, $50 million a year is not really going to help many mm. students. So sometimes you actually have to make decisions year on year about the need, and you know that, having mm. been in, in Cabinet and been a minister, that you know when you start a program that's good, maybe you do more, maybe you, there are different ways that you tweak it. And so what concerns me is that there isn't enough money for those sort of programs. There are definitely parts of department that will be going that actually do help students and parents. And then even things like the voucher. I mean, you mentioned active kids, but creative kids is really mm. important. The back-to-school vouchers, first which lap. a lot of people will rely on come summertime. It's not going to be there yep. this time. First lap. Know. First lap, yep. before and after school care. We did $500 mm. for each child to help with that, which is really important, particularly for working families. Exactly. That's and, just, it's and, gone. And getting our female participation r- rate up in yeah. the workforce. Exactly. Yeah. People are really starting, I don't know if you hear it, but I certainly do in the regions, mm. people are really starting to talk about not having mm. access to that sort of cost of living mm. support. And even things like, you know, I was in a small town just out of Dubbo a couple of months ago, their junior netball and their junior rugby league have both been rejuvenated, I guess, with active kids because mm. people could afford to pay the registration. They won't have that 
next yep. year because there's no money for it and people can't afford it. And, yep. you know, what are the social, physical impacts on that for the children? What, are they going to be, you know, more disruptive at school because they haven't got their outlet to yep. play footy on the weekend? When we're like every action has a reaction exactly. and consequence. And, and when you're in a yeah. cost of living crisis, yeah. when, you know, the little things that government can do to help. Yeah, it makes a huge and, and difference. And they've cut them. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Now, one of the things that always, you know, I was a, president of my kids PNC before I came into parliament and as was my father as were a number of my siblings with Mm. their kids schools always took an interest in our local public school that our kids were attending Mm. but one of the things that always struck me as being strange about the teacher's career trajectory Mm. is that the only way to really pull yourself into a higher salary if you're a good teacher was to go into administration where you don't teach anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so we had a policy to Mm. deal with that, Mm. which was our performance-based pay for teachers, which would pay a really good classroom teacher Mm. to stay in the classroom and not become an administrator. And by Mm. the way, a good classroom teacher is not necessarily a great administrator Mm. anyway. They may be, but they're not always. Mm. So if you've got a passion for teaching and you're an inspiring teacher, to reward them for being a great teacher and and by the way being a great teacher doesn't mean that you have an OC class or Mm. something it can be that you're in a small country town Mm. with a high indigenous population and you are doing Mm. wonderful things with those kids it's Mm. not you know it's you know so we you know we had a policy Mm. to keep good teachers teaching Mm. that was one of the first things to be cut Mm. and I mean they're the things in opposition that are really hard to watch happen and that particularly so there was a lot of work done on that and and a man called uh, Professor John Hattie who is world renowned for his work in education he's done a lot of work in Singapore helping set up their structures now Singapore is often quoted as being a a country that does incredibly well in terms of education outcomes. So he came and did that work for us. We had more than 100 roundtables in schools right across the state where we literally sat down and I went to a number of them with teachers, with assistant principals, with principals about, okay, how does this work? How do you measure? So it was called rewarding excellence. So it was how do you measure excellence in teaching? What are the, the ways that you could pick who is part of this, you know, what would be the process, how long would they be there for. And we had good, but like people were nervous because it was different and I expect I accepted that. But I think the argument, as you've said, is that year on year you get a pay increase when you're a teacher and then you kind of hit that ceiling of so many years of service and there's nowhere for you to go unless you become a head teacher or an AP or a DP or end up moving yourself eventually into out of the classroom into school leadership management or into a department. Whereas there are a lot of people who uh, love that joy of teaching and being in the classroom. So we were trying to modernise the profession. We were trying to say, well, how could you potentially earn as much as being an assistant or a deputy principal but be a classroom teacher? How do we share your best practice with others? Can you do professional uh, learning? Can you have be the mentor for early career teachers or prac teachers coming in like and it was big reform but it was exciting and as I said it wasn't just sort of you know Sarah Mitchell or Don Perrottet coming up with this idea even though sort of was our idea to look at it but we got experts in to help us design it now it went almost immediately and it was a political decision by the government the irony is um, the OECD have done some work recently on outcomes and they actually recommended that that particular project has merit and should keep going and that's a classic example of politics really getting in the way of what could have been very exciting reform in terms of policy. The union didn't like it from the beginning. The irony is the pay wages deal that they've done, because they didn't like the idea of different people getting paid different amounts for doing the same work, 
but you've also now got a, a, a pay wage or a wages deal, I should say, where first year teachers were getting more than continuing teachers and then the ones at the end were getting a bit more. So they've landed on a bit of a staged pay deal in the one that they signed with the government, but that was okay. But the idea that we wanted to say, well, you know, you might have 10 classroom teachers and two of you are part of this program. You've got more work that you need to do around it, but it was trying to be a bit more innovative with how we made the, the profession attractive but also find a way to value and reward people who are excellent at what they do. And I stand behind that. I think it's a good policy setting. So we'll see. It might have a re-reserve, you know, might come back. It was interesting, the hostility to the policy. So Mm. I I was bailed up by a constituent Mm. at a street stall who taught an OC class and I think – and who had been teaching OC classes Mm. for 25 years. So I think she was exactly the very person – that this policy would kind of reward because mm. she was obviously a good teacher. She could have had, you know, career progression into being an assistant principal or principal and chosen not to do that and, and teach these very gifted kids. And she was very hostile to it. But it was very interesting as I explained to her, mm. no, it's not based on how the kids perform. No. It's based yeah. on how you... So it wouldn't be just... Yeah. You know, a sinecure for OC teachers. Yeah. It would apply equally to whether, you know, wh- whether you're teaching a, a more challenging cohort mm. of students. Mm. And when I actually explained it to her in those terms and, and so on, she sort of went away and did a shopping and then came back and said, thanks mm. for explaining. You know, like, mm. you know, I think that... But, but one of the, you know, one of the issues was, well, how would you judge whether someone's a good mm. teacher or not? And I said, well... When you get a promotion as a teacher, you're always being judged. Mm. It's it's not as if, mm. you know, it's not as if it's any different to applying to be an assistant principal or a mm. deputy principal or a principal. Yeah, you know, there are assessments right. all the way. And and these were intended to be roles that people actually either were nominated for or put themselves forward for to say, I would like to take this position. This is what I've been doing. And like I said, that's why we got John Hattie in to do it. That's why we had significant roundtables with teachers from Sydney to remote to everywhere in between and said, what would this look like in your school? How would you manage it? What happens in some of our really small schools where you've effectively got a teaching principal? You've only got one, maybe two staff members. So it was not something that we were intending to do without a lot of consultation Mm. and some time. You know, it was going to trial this year and 50 schools and get it started. But I think it had the potential, and I still think it has the potential, to be something that could be a bit more exciting. Like having a system that is rewards somebody on talent rather than just tenure, I think is the kind of reform that you need to have in some of the public service and in in education. And I stand by it, but we'll see what happens. Well, we'll also... Maybe one day it'll come. There's been a big narrative about us losing our teachers... Mm. But it seems to me that the mo- that the most able teachers are the greatest flight risk mm. because they're the you know they're the heavily motivated you know very dynamic teachers they're mm. the ones that are if they hit a ceiling in terms of their salary they're much more likely I think to leave teaching and go yeah, and do I mean I think it's nuanced you know I mean and and again we. We cop a lot of criticism still, even though they're in government and they really should just focus on what they need to be doing, but about what happened with, with teacher shortages. But every state was dealing with this. It wasn't like we were a standout as not, a Not just every government. state every, in Australia, every, well, every, in every, world, Western, like, every well, Western country. That's right. But also, I mean, I, I you know, living in Canada, we, yep, we ha- absolutely had issues with teaching staff. We have issues getting nurses and doctors. Like, it's, there, is, there is a mm. workforce shortage across a range of industries 
And 93% of yeah. business New South Wales well, businesses surveyed yeah. had staff shortages. Yeah. And so we would sit as education ministers together when we would meet, and regardless of your political colours, most were Labor states. We were all grappling with what can we do, how mm. can we try new things. So it wasn't because, you know, we were a terrible coalition government. That's just not true. And it's they politicised it. They, to, they have yeah. politicised yeah. the labour shortages the in teaching issues. and nursing yeah. and so on yeah. to try and make it seem yeah. as if it was our fault yeah. when it was happening everywhere. But it also just, I think it, it exacerbated some of the issues around trying to get people into the profession because when... Ever you would hear some speak about it, it was, you know, teaching is a really hard job. I am continually amazed by the incredible teachers and educators that we have in this state. My children are at public school, like, you know, I went to public school. We, like, th- there are significantly, there's significant work done day in and day mm. out, and I have so much respect for teachers. And I do get really frustrated, particularly when our opposition, the Labor Party, tend to make out that we don't care, because I... I completely reject Absolutely. that because I saw it day in and day out and I was very privileged to be be the minister but you know dealing with workforce pressures talking down the profession constantly which is what labor did in opposition yep. it doesn't help you've no. got to start talking about what's positive what are things you can do around workload what's working now they seem to think that pay will be the silver bullet that will fix it I'm a little less certain about that. I actually think that it's not going to give the outcomes that they want, but we'll see, particularly if you're cutting other things behind the scenes that are actually going to be supporting teachers. Mm. If the workload doesn't get easier, children are complex, there's a lot going on. Like I just think that's multifaceted and and maybe the, the pay... You know, maybe it will help some, but I just don't know whether it will be the solution that the Labor Party are hoping it will be. But time will tell. Time will tell. Mm. One of the things that we had an opportunity to work together on was VET in our school systems Mm -hmm. and expanding that. I'm really proud of what we're able to achieve there. It's so important to give kids who uh, don't necessarily want to go to university and follow a a traditional academic uh, route... Mm. The alternative to um, pursue study that is more practical, mm. more dealing with their hands and so on, mm. um, we, we really we really kick some goals there, I thought. Mm. I think so too. And I think you're right in that children or students should be given options. And, and one of the things that we did working together was make that change, particularly for year 11 and 12 subjects where you could only do, I think, one VET course effectively and you wouldn't be eligible for an ATAR. That will change for students in year 11 and 12 from next year, I think, from memory, because you couldn't sort of bring it in Mm. midway through a cohort. But you don't have to choose now when you're at the end of year 10 if you're going to be vocational or academic. You can actually do what you enjoy, still be eligible for an ATAR and then make some decisions. And and every and you would have seen this when you were minister, but the number of times you meet with universities who say people might come and do a degree, but then they'll go to TAFE and do a micro course or someone might start doing a TAFE qualification but then come to uni to do this. Like The whole world of work has changed. The idea that you've either got to be vocational or academic and never the two shall meet is not the lived reality of the workplace exactly. anymore. Well, it's we've becoming got schools have got to reflect that. You're right, yeah. and it's becoming so much more blurred. Yeah, um, but in a good way. I it, think. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Be- because because your kid that might be really good at physics yeah. will want to do an, an electrical yeah. course because there's a lot of physics in yeah. and electronics. So, but but also the, the, the rule was crazy, right? Now I did music for the HSC, mm. but, uh, so I'm not having a crack it's at the rock music. star days. But but, back. but you could but but you can study music, you can study art, mm. you can study industrial art, mm. but for and get 
counter towards your ATAR. Mm. But with some of these VET courses, I mean, they're cloud computing, mm. you know, they're real estate agency mm. courses. They're, they're, there's a huge range mm. of VET courses. Mm. You can only count one. Yeah, and, and now you can count more. And that yes. was the whole point. Yes. I mean, and even if you want to look at potential sort of earnings and, and also how you have that conversation with parents because a lot of kids that I would speak to would be like, my parents are expecting me to go to university or they're expecting this. It's like, have you seen how much you make mm. as a builder or a sparky or a plumber? Like if you want to go into your own business and there's a lot of opportunity in the trades, construction work, in IT. Yep. And again, so many people now have different jobs throughout their life, pick up different skill sets and you're not sort of limited by any decision and that's really exciting so we need to have that in our school setting. and, and well. those in school vet programs you know they were having a oh, huge so a huge conversion yeah. to actually job outcomes yeah. after school so yeah. that was the other thing too yeah. which i thought was very significant yeah look we shouldn't finish talking about education okay. without actually acknowledging one thing mm-hmm. and that is that During the 12 years of the coalition government, we had the largest school building program Mm. ever in the history of New South Wales. Mm. And I I don't think there was any public school that was actually untouched. Mm. I mean, I I know in my electorate, when I first became a member in 2015, the principals would tell me about leaking roofs, destroying kids' work. Every Mm. time there was a a big, you know, downfall. All the roofs got replaced mm. in in our local schools pretty much throughout mm. uh, our area, probably yours too, mm. but also the new schools too. Mm. Was it 200 new and upgraded yeah, I mean, schools? I think the total... Or no, more. Well, oh, no, it was about that, just over. But the total budget for us of what we delivered and what is in has been in the pipeline, which the new government will now cut the ribbons and open, but that's okay as long as the community gets it. It was almost $19 billion. Like, it's yeah. a lot of money. I think we delivered close to $9 billion and there was another $8 billion coming. Like, it, it was serious, significant reform. And I think what we were able to do very well was build for growth, like a lot of new schools, obviously, out in Western Sydney, but also upgrade existing schools that needed it. So mm. we had, you know, lots of money into school maintenance, of course, but, um, you know, lo- lots of areas got updated classrooms or new science labs or new... Um, technology rooms or whatever it was that they needed and that included in regional areas and I think that's really important Mm. because again going back to what we said before about education being the great enabler you know you should be able to have state-of-the-art facilities no matter where you're going to school and if you only build for growth you're going to have aging infrastructure a lot of schools were built in the 50s 60s 70s so they needed work done and I think Mm. we got that balance right whether it was a brand new school in a growing suburb or 10 new classrooms or an upgrade of an existing school that really brought it into the century in terms of learning I'm proud of what we did in that space and the very very important and the creation of education infrastructure Mm. um, they really have brought a professionalism in terms of the delivery yeah Yeah, school infrastructure a professionalism to the delivery not not only of the new schools but Mm. also the maintenance programs yeah and and look Rob Stokes did that and I think it was a stroke of genius because again we had health infrastructure we've got now got school infrastructure where this is what these guys do for a living they're experts they know where to build Mm. they know what to look for they know what capacity you need and again I think that was a a really insightful thing that Rob did in his time and they're looking at the best sort of class 
classroom designs yeah. and all that sort of stuff from around the world. Yeah. It, it's it, it does give you a genuine level of expertise, yeah, definitely. which I think has been terrific. Mm. Now, look, before you go, mm. I, I just want to talk, you know, pol- politically. Mm. There, it seems to me that there's been a real issue around integrity and mm. competence mm. in terms of the performance of this Minns Labor government. Mm. We've got Tim Crackenthorpe already sacked and sent to ICAC, uh, referred to ICAC. Uh, we've got... Big issues around Joe Halen mm. and and her. I mean, it's Joe Halen was a staffer to Anthony Albanese mm. Mm. when Labor were last federally in government. She knows the mm. rules. Mm. She's got a DLO doing a whole lot of political work, organising political barbecues, mm. and but but beyond that, also apparently attack lines on me yeah. and question time yeah, and so on, all completely against the rules. Of course, yeah. Are you surprised by the lack of integrity? Look, I. I wish I could say I was, but it feels like the bad old days of Labor are back again. And I think, you know, personal politics aside, and you don't wish anybody, you know, anything other than success, you know, you have to be pragmatic when there's a change of government and you understand that they've been elected to do a job. But that that lack of awareness and, you know, like you say, Joe's been around for a long time. And so I think when you talk to the average person on the street, I don't know how you could not be aware that this was happening in your office and I know she continues to claim that but it, it concerns me you know I was at a dinner a couple oh, last week and someone said oh how long have these guys been in now is it two years yet and I said it's been eight months like people just think that they've been there for so long because rot starting to set in already and I think there's a number of ministers who are underperforming and and I think that's problematic because as I said you don't wish anybody you know anything untoward as as people we all work in this building Mm. and you know everybody Mm. and you Mm. you try to be a pleasant person as much as you can or at least I I do and I know you do too um but but these are people making really serious decisions about our state whether it's transport whether it's police whether it's for us regional New South Wales you know there's cuts that are being made there are decisions being made by I think ministers who aren't up to it and that is a real problem for our communities and it's part of our job Mm. as weird as it is now in opposition to have to be kind of a bit critical and negative a lot of the time Mm. But we've got to call it out because if people aren't performing, it's actually our communities that will suffer and and you need to have a high standard. What concerns me most seems to be the lack of capacity to learn from mistakes. So we've got Joe Halen with multiple infractions. Mm. We've got Yasmin Catley bumbling along on Mm. multiple occasions. I mean, for me, the big thing was not actually stopping those protesters from going on the steps of the Opera House. It Mm. seems to me that... It's just, well, you know, we had the, the tasering incident yeah. where they covered, tried to cover that up. We've got the Opera House. We've got the, the protests in Newcastle. Yeah. It just seems as if they keep bumbling along, making mistakes. Hoping they get away with it. And, and in the agriculture portfolio, there have mm. been some issues too, haven't mm. they? Mm. And I think, you know, I mean, we've just had estimates, obviously, which is a really telling way to know who's across the detail of their brief and who isn't. And one of the things that I found most concerning, and particularly in the police portfolio because I sat in on that, one when the issues were happening with the opera house i think the premier and the police minister spoke once when you know the the very tragic death of of claire nowlin the the police minister didn't pick up the phone to the premier to tell him their officers spoke and i to me that's really telling because i think if you're not communicating as the senior ministers with the premier about these issues i don't know what kind of internal communications they have but that really worries me that you're not talking as you need to be well, and, and I think that they're I just I'm, I'm very curious as to who's in inner circles and who's not when you don't have main ministers 
chatting as regularly as they should be about really serious issues. That to me was quite. I, I was quite shocked by by that. Well, well, when Chris Minns ran for the leadership, I think the second time mm. with Joe Halen as his deputy, mm. he was running against mm. Jody McKay and Yasmin yeah, Catley. Well, maybe that's why. So yeah. I, I I wonder whether what we're seeing are some pretty deep seated mm. poor relationships mm. within their team, which yeah, means that but, they're but not the picking state up. Has to function. I, I when you know. have a police minister that can't pick up a phone to a premier, or doesn't, or vice versa, particularly on an issue as important as law and order. That's really concerning. It seems extraordinary, doesn't mm. it? But but that seems to well, be what's happening. One example. Yeah. Mm. Who knows what else happens that we don't know about? Exactly. Exactly. Anyway. Well, Sarah, great, great Thanks to have a chat. Me. Thanks very much for coming on. And can I wish. You and your family, a very Merry Christmas. We're, we're now in the last last sitting week, yes. so we're we're coming towards the time of school assemblies and yep. and, and, and other things. But mm. thank you very much for joining me, and I hope you get a bit of rest over the summer. Thank you. In this week's political section, we're actually talking about what is the last sitting week of Parliament for 2023. This is the first year of sitting of the Minns government after the March election. It's been a pretty patchy performance, hasn't it? Yeah, there have been some ups and downs, mainly downs, a lot of downs that we've covered over the last couple of months. So the scorecard is that we have one minister sacked and sent to the ICAC. We have Jo Halen. Yeah, she's had a few dramas, hasn't she? She's had a lot of dramas. So we've had the Josh Murray affair where he seems to have been promoted through a process when he wasn't the preferred candidate. He could have just been a political appointment, but they went through a sham $125,000 process to appoint the person that is Chris Min's long-term mate and, and that Joe Halen wanted. Then now we've got three different occasions where there have been staffing issues in her mm. in her office where... Departmental staff. Have departmental been. staff have been politicised, yeah. two different people... So we've now got we've got now Josh Murray, two t- DLOs who, who incidentally are both former Labor candidates, mm-hmm. both public servants doing political work when the clear rules for DLOs suggest that they shouldn't. One of them, I understand, is being paid three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Yes, so they've been pulling in senior staff. Three hundred and fifty. Three hundred fifty thousand. So look, wow. if it, if if politics was a game of baseball. Joe Halen would have three strikes and she'd been out, yeah. but this is not the, the this is not a meritocracy in the Minns Labor government. She's too important factually for mm. him to get rid of. So he's nursing nursing some pretty sick ministers, and, and 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 these are just the ones that we've got time to talk about. So it's been a huge challenge. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Roselle interchange. Mm. issue is that it greatly impacts Joe Halen's seat of Summer Hill. And that, and although Josh Murray was supposed to be a communication expert, the signage and other aspects of the way in which the Roselle interchange has worked has been a disaster, just a traffic nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the other thing is if they'd had a toll-free period like we did when we opened up new um, toll roads, there would have been a time for the for the public to just get to use it without worrying about whether they didn't want to pay the toll or not. But they haven't done that, and they haven't had good signage. Mm-hmm. So the you know we, we built this huge and magnificent piece of infrastructure. They had one job, 
which was actually to open it properly after we'd... Cut the ribbon right. To cut the ribbon. <laughs> you know, they're very good at cutting ribbons, but they don't seem to be very good at do- on our projects, on mm. coalition projects, but they don't seem to be very good at doing anything else. The, the Premier had COVID this week, so he actually didn't attend the last week of Parliament. I must say that it exposed the very weak... Yeah. talent within their did team. Did it change the dynamic in the chamber at all? It did because usually the first government question is to the Premier and he gets up and, and, and struts around with some confidence. He's certainly more confident. He's not necessarily more competent, but he's certainly more confident than the other members of the team. Mm. But without him there, it was just a world war mediocrity really <laughs> and and it was very flat yeah and they were rattled they were rattled mm. on the questions so the week didn't go well for them mm. the the other the other issue was and and this goes to the competency of the mins government as you know 3z of the crimes act section 93z of the crimes act creates a, an offence for people who incite violence based on a number of different categories like race, religious Mm. affiliation, a group identity or an individual characteristic. And and there are a number of different groups that are are covered by the legislation, including, you know, the gay community and so on. And Labor said that one of the problems with that section not being used more, so, for example, it was a classic example where gas the Jews should have been prosecuted under Section 93, Zed, but at this stage we're not aware of anyone mm. that's been charged with that offence. Now, the, the government has tried to justify the absence of any prosecutions on the basis that there's a threshold, which is that the DPP has to approve uh, the initiation of prosecutions. So, and, and they said it would work better if we had the police could also initiate prosecutions. Right. So rather than just add the DPP or the police in the legislation, the Attorney-General decided to delete the DPP and just be silent on who initiates the prosecution. And there are other provisions of the DPP Act and the Crimes Act that would allow them to commence prosecutions. But if you don't limit the people who can initiate prosecutions, it also allows private citizens to initiate criminal prosecutions. So a very provision which is supposed to protect the community and protect the harmony of the community, Labor has amended it in such a way that would enable people from communities that have animosity towards other communities to actually commence legal criminal proceedings against each other using this section for whatever they have said. So, and, and, and nobody, that was not announced to the public by Chris Menz when he announced this change He said, we're going to add the police, right? It was not in the second reading speech of the Attorney-General that he said, we're adding police. So they seem to have been completely unaware of the effect of Section 14 of the Criminal Procedure Act that would allow individuals from the way in which they've changed the bill to, or the Act, to initiate private criminal prosecutions, which I don't think anyone I've spoken to thinks is a good idea and it doesn't matter what community you you identify with and that you think section 93z might be able to give you protection and make you feel more safe Mm. so 
although it's been somewhat misreported, unfortunately, in the media, there was some suggestion that we were trying to water down what the government was trying to do. We weren't trying to water down what the government was trying to do. We were trying to change the legislation to make sure that it was doing what the government said they wanted to do and not to have private individuals being able to, um, you know, initiate criminal prosecutions against other citizens. So, uh, unfortunately, just another example of bungling by the Minns government... Amateur hour. Uh, well, look, it, it, it's incredible, really. So that's the week that has been uh, this week in Parliament. We've, we've sat two nights very late because <laughs> Labor have been trying to rush things through mm. the Parliament. But it's been an interesting year to observe the Minns Labor government up close. And we look forward to... We will have some more podcasts this year. Yes. We, we just won't be reporting on what's happening in Parliament. There may be political sections. So anyway, that's the week that it is and was. And thank you for having a chat with me and thanks for being guests on Macquarie Street Matters. Thanks, Alice. I know you. You know me. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters and I look forward to you joining us again next week. Together.